0: Today I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Lewis Rubinson. Uh, Dr. Rubinson uh, has a special interest in, in Ebola and recently traveled to West Africa to uh, specifically deal with it. To give you a little background, uh, Dr. Rubinson did his, uh, got his doctor of medicine in Northwestern, got his Ph.D. at, at Hopkins in uh, clinical investigation followed up with uh, internal medicine uh, training at uh, UCSF um, and uh, fellowship in pulmonary care at Hopkins, then did further training in biosecurity at uh, Pittsburgh, and then took a staff position, UW, uh, um, in Seattle, followed up with a variety of duties for the um, federal government, the CDC, largely, and then um, over the past few years for the Emergency Care Coordinating Center and the Office of Preparedness and Emergency Operations and uh, all part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. He's currently the um, recently the acting uh, chief medical officer up through 2013. So it's uh, really a pleasure to have him, and as he now directs uh, our uh, critical care resuscitation unit, here at uh, University of Maryland, and it's really a a wonderful addition. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. So I'm going to
1: talk about Ebola, hopefully try and dispel some of the uh, fear-mongering and some of the pseudoscience that's been in most of the lay press for the past four or five months, talk a little bit about the implications from uh, when you provide care in West Africa, what does that uh, translate to if you had to provide the care in the U.S. Um, and then, uh, unfortunately, it's a pretty long lecture, but hopefully I'll, I'll bust through it so that there's time for questions and answers at the end. So just in terms of relevant disclaimers and disclosures, the big one is, uh, so I went as a uh, member of the WHO Uh, And my talk only reflects my opinions. It doesn't reflect any uh, policy or doctrine from the World Health Organization or the UN. Uh, We're going to talk briefly about uh, why folks may sporadically come back to the U.S. and have Ebola. Talk a little bit about how it's transmitted. Uh, Again, trying to dispel um, a lot of the uh, uh, fear that's been going on about it talk a little bit about the burgeoning knowledge base, and ultimately if we have time at the end to talk about what is critical care management uh, for with Ebola if we were to manage folks back in the U.S., and obviously all of you being uh, linked to different critical care divisions and departments here, uh, I think that's probably where most of the interesting stuff ultimately translates to. So just in terms of history. So you've heard people from the CDC say say this is a new disease. Uh, They, of all places, should know this is not a new disease. So this has been 40 years, at least since it's been identified, probably been going on even longer than that. Um, But really, this is a new type of outbreak. So until recently, the people really had the right arm patch of kind of you've done great work was the Gulu outbreak. It was a large outbreak that was just under 450 patients. And... Uh, in comparison to now, we're, we're talking probably about 17,000 people who have Ebola in this particular outbreak. So the order of magnitude is so different. And it's different because this is an urban outbreak. All of these older outbreaks really happened in rural, isolated environments where a lot of the control measures were already starting to be undertaken even before the expatriate uh, international aid workers came in to be able to uh, get control of it. There have been a lot of prototype Uh, vaccines out there, but there was really no economic marketplace to actually push them past uh, early development, and same with novel therapeutics. Again, there are a number of uh, investigational agents, but they kind of got stuck for a while because really the only people that were investing in that were Department of Defense, a little bit Health and Human Services. Uh, a little bit in the international community, but on the most part, uh, companies aren't really going to bring these uh, agents forward when they see no economic advantage to doing so. So as I mentioned, this outbreak is different, and it's different because uh, back in December it started in Guinea, probably started around Gekadu, which is a rural area uh, of Guinea, and the species, there are five Ebola species. The one that's causing this outbreak is Ebola Zaire. Uh, historically, has a very high mortality rate, but we really don't know what the mortality would be if people had what we would consider everyday care, such as what happens upstairs or over at the university. Most of the places where this was taking place, um, really, IV fluid would be considered aggressive care. So a- as to whether that is an element of the disease itself or poor, Healthcare infrastructure is not really uh, well known. In March, something changed. So in March, what happened is there were folks who got infected in Gekadu and then came back to Conakry, which is the capital of Guinea. And how many people here have been in West Africa? So several of you all know that, um, unfortunately, the capitals are essentially urban slums. They're similar to Rio, similar to Port-au-Prince, and other areas that have profound... Uh, economic disadvantage and almost no resource. So you can imagine when you start seeing disease getting into these very impoverished areas that have a high concentration of people, that it's off to the races. And that's, in fact, what happened. MSF, or Doctors Without Borders, had really started to shoot the flare up early, saying this is going to be an unprecedented outbreak. The rest of the world was kind of on their heels rather than leaning forward and missed, really, the early elements of the outbreak, and it wasn't until really you start getting into the summer that this thing exploded and the rest of the world started to realize this is much worse than anyone had ever seen. And this is kind of pretty much anywhere you go in West Africa. These are what the streets look like. Uh, And this actually is a fairly unpopulated street compared to most of the other streets where there's a fair amount of economic things that are happening on the side of every road, and there's a huge amount of garbage disposal issues. There's a lot of wastewater that's moving around. So, again, not a place that's got a tremendous amount of deep resources to be able to respond once something gets hold uh, in, in these urban environments. Where's Sierra Leone? So when you look at West Africa, what we're talking about for this particular outbreak is Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia were the most impacted uh, areas. Nigeria was a a very big concern uh, initially because, one, it's a very populated area. And two, there is a huge amount of economic interaction between Nigeria and the rest of the West. So you can imagine there would be a lot of movement potentially of infected people if this really got hold in Nigeria. Mali now has a smattering of disease as well, and Senegal had uh, the imported case. So Sierra Leone, where I was, Freetown is here on the western coast, and that's about 1.5 million people. Uh, Again, it's mostly an urban slum. Um, But I was down in Kenema, which is in the southeast area. And then the way the outbreak started is when it came over from Guinea, it started here on the eastern side near... Uh, Kai Lihun, and Doctors Without Borders set up an early treatment unit there, uh, MSF Kailahun. But once disease started spreading from east to west, the rest of the country had decided that Kenema would be the referral hospital for all the cases. And I can assure you, one, transportation is not easy through Sierra Leone, so there is now a proper road that goes from Freetown to Kenema that was built by the Chinese because of uh, mining interests and being able to make sure that industry can expand there. But on the most part, you don't want to drive people at night because very dangerous traffic issues. The way people move is they move through these makeshift ambulances that are essentially pickup trucks that have a cab on the back. Uh, There's no AC. They put three to 11 people in the back and send them without any hydration, and hopefully they'll be alive when they come to you on the other side. Uh, and then just looking at overall, uh, why are these countries struggling so much? Well, Sierra Leone had just come out of a very uh, severe civil war uh, a bit over a decade ago and was really just starting to get their economy back in, in play. When you look at the overall GDP of the country, probably George Soros on a good year makes war himself – than the entire country does, and that's for 6 million people. It's a very young country, mostly because of war as well as disease. The life expectancy is under 50 years old, and the illiteracy rate is nearly 70%. So it's a place where it's very, very hard to have systematic fixes, Uh, even though they're good people and they work hard. There's just not a lot of infrastructure to be able to build a response, especially to an outbreak that's this large. When I went, I went part of Pillar 3, which is clinical care. There are a variety of other elements that are important to being able to get early isolation and stopping spread of disease in the population. The reason why clinical care is important is if everyone assumes that no matter what, you go to a treatment unit, you're going to die, they're not likely to come out of their community, get separated from their family, and being able to do that willingly. So as part of both disease control as well as just doing the right thing, being a a good human is to provide better care to make sure that you're impacting and reducing the mortality of this disease. So I ended up at a place called Kenema Government Hospital, Um, and this is just a photo that was taken from one of the, uh, the scientific journals that highlights some of the senior staff. So Kenema Government Hospital was a very proud place. They were the only place that had a Lassa treatment ward in the entire world, and they, again, took a lot of pride in having that as their claim to fame. Uh, This gentleman, uh, Sheikh Umar Khan, was the Lhasa physician. So about a decade ago, the previous Lhasa physician died, and everyone stepped back when they asked for volunteers, and he was the guy left standing. And he was willing to do what most people wouldn't do, which is to take on... Highly infectious and, you know, reasonably uh, deadly disease, and make his career out of it. He trained internationally, got fully trained in infectious disease, but unfortunately, he got Ebola during this outbreak and he died. In fact, uh, a number of the senior staff at Kenema before I got there, there were over thirty healthcare workers who were, had already been infected. Nearly twenty of them had died before I got there. Um, while I was in route. Uh, I was starting to get more situational awareness and situational reports. I had talked to a bunch of people who had already been out through the WHO, and I was informed I was going to be the doc, one doc, uh, at KGH when I got there. There were no Sierra Leone physicians who were working in the treatment unit. But unfortunately, the person who I was supposed to get the handoff from, he got Ebola as well, so he's an American doctor, and he was evacuated out. So uh, as I was traveling, trying to get in-country into Kenema, there was actually no one seeing the patients from an international standpoint uh, in, in, the, uh, in the unit. And when we arrived there, we had no idea what was going on. We had no idea how many patients were there. Uh, the, uh, it's a hybrid uh, model where the nurses were Sierra Leonean, but most of the senior nurses had died or had left uh, the outbreak and decided it was no longer for them. So it's a very hierarchical nursing system there where there's a lot less independent uh, nursing decision-making at the bedside. So we did a lot of collaboration in terms of talking with the nurses and coming up with plans every day. But without the senior leadership to really model and hold accountability, it essentially was the Wild West. It was a free-for-all, and every day was kind of uh, Groundhog's Day. So we would talk on making things better and then... We, we would have the same conversation over and over, so it was really a place that was struggling to stay functional, and uh, it was clearly wounded. Great people still struggling to be able to uh, manage the outbreak, but uh, there was essentially again no senior leadership in the WHO. There were eight of us who were there. I was the clinical lead. It turned out there were a few more docs because docs were sent to do the investigation on why why Doctor X got ill. So that fortunately gave me a few extra people to be able to utilize in the unit. So when I got there, the other thing I was told, you know, you you show up and you're like, hey, how are you doing? And they're like, all right, this is the way it works, and you're going to follow it. And you're like, yes, I get it. I had been in a fair amount of other responses. Uh, I had done this all my career, but I'd never been in an Ebola response, and definitely one not this big or in this dysfunctional of, of an outbreak situation. So we we were kind of instructed early on in in kind of this idea of no touch. What that means is you're responsible for protecting your own personal environment. And whether or not that really reduces the likelihood of transmission, probably doesn't that much. But it puts your game face on 24-7, and I think that's the important thing. You need to really be disciplined and thinking about what you're doing the entire time. So... You know, if you're talking on a cell phone and someone else needs to talk to that person, it goes on speaker, or you just hang up and let them call back, and the cells aren't very good there, so if you can't talk to them again, you can't talk to them again. Just you don't want to be sharing stuff, and we, we practice 100% discipline uh, on that. Uh, and then the other problem, too, was uh, you would think that we'd have ways of finding if someone has early symptoms to be able to pre- protect the rest of the staff, because that's what you're worried about, Right. Uh, Most of the healthcare workers who got infected out there, really there was no smoking gun of when they got infected. It wasn't, I know exactly it was this time, and therefore uh, you can isolate that person. It's essentially, you're in a high-risk environment every day, all the time, and you're not really sure when that happens, so you're looking for symptoms. But the first thing everyone describes, even though it hasn't made it that much in the literature, is profound fatigue. But, yeah, we're working really long hours. It's really hot, and you're exhausted. So pr- profound fatigue is in the eye of the beholder. And if you hear Craig Sanders talk about when he first became symptomatic in New York, the MSF doc, the young doc who just got infected, he, was, he had fatigue before he uh, got febrile. But, again, he kind of chalked it up to I just came out of a really long response. I was exhausted, and it didn't occur to me that that was the early symptom. The other thing is headache. Like, Well, you try and hydrate all the time, but anyone who does mountaineering, et cetera, knows that it's hard to keep up. And in that environment, uh, we were constantly cycling through GI disturbance, headaches, etc. cetera. Um, so fever really became your only reliable way of trying to figure out, is someone sick of your cadre and your cohort? Um, but we also learned there was a WHO epidemiologist who hid their fever for several days, uh, and. Potentially exposed in office in a different area. So again, just the importance of no touch was to create an environment that was uh, Important for you to take your own responsibility to be safely uh, Protected from everyone who you're working with even though emotionally. We're all very well connected physically. We all kept our space Um, Which then leads to okay? If you're in this environment, right, so there, there's all this concern about how you get Ebola in the U.S., right? Take kids out of school who someone was on an airplane uh, two time, two trips after someone else potentially had it. I mean, really? That's not the risk, right? When you're in the environment where the disease is actually there, you get fairly good at trying to know what, how are you going to get it and how are you not going to get it. So that's really where no touch led to discussions of what are we worried about. And people who are likely to transmit Ebola, it's simple. If The sicker you are, the more likely you are to have an infectious burden, also to produce fluids that are more likely to be infectious. And then the people who are caring for you at that state, whether it's loved ones or it's healthcare workers, are most likely to get exposed. Casual contact was the wrong message. It's not that casual, you can't get it from casual contact. You most certainly can, but only when someone's dying. You know, and it, when someone's dying from Ebola, they're not out shopping in the mall. These people, you know, they're in bed. They look awful. So the casual contact can spread disease, but only laden disease, and only from people who are truly, you know, near those people. Fomite transmission, which is indirect contact, meaning someone some, uh, one with Ebola touches an inanimate surface, someone else touches that inanimate surface and then touches their mucous membranes, It's a possible uh, source of transmission, but it's less likely. fortunate thing is the virus is not very robust. Now, if the virus is hanging out in a bunch of vomit or a bunch of stool and there's not a lot of UV light that's penetrating and it's not super hot, it probably can last there for a little while. So what this assumes is that you're doing proper technique of reducing big burden, of infectious particles, using virucidals to wipe up. And then fomite transmission is possible, but again, less likely. And airborne is probably the most controversial. So in West Africa, airborne is probably not a major way of how the disease is spread, or all of us who were there would have it. We're, we get very close to people. In fact, our convalescing patients, we don't use personal protective equipment since it's so hot. We just talk to them over the fence. Uh, and that's the only way you can get your work done and to be able to see all of the patients. So airborne is highly unlikely. It has maybe a role if someone has projectile vomiting, but the key thing is that's in West Africa. In West Africa, there's no use of oxygen at all. There is none of the things that we do to the upper respiratory tract and the airway uh, going on there. So if we use Vapotherm to manage someone, we may, in fact, see airborne spread. So, again, the cautions and the and the 100% statements from some of our public health agencies are poor reassurance because they don't really describe to people what we truly know and what we don't know. We do not know how Ebola will be transmitted in modern healthcare facilities. We just don't. Um, the, most of the data on Ebola, even though, again, we're probably on the order of between 15% 15,000 and 17,000 patients still comes from previous outbreaks. So the science has not kept up with the huge bolus of patients. So most of what we know, again, still comes back to previous studies. This is a study uh, from 2007 during the previous outbreak where they looked at whether or not they could recover RNA or actual infectious particles from different body fluids. And what the answer is, is it's hard to actually get it back from most body fluids. But this study's small, and it depends how sick the person was and what they were shedding at the time. And this we've seen even in the most, in recent literature, this is from the German patient uh, who was published, their uh, experience was published in the New England Journal uh, a few weeks ago. This came out, and people would tell you that you don't really see sweat uh, being positive, but in fact they were getting signals from PCR, from sweat, after uh, plasma RNA was starting to go down. So the answer is we actually still don't know. We think in, in sick people it's better to protect yourself from all body fluids. We do know there are certain compartments that will hold on to RNA even much longer. So semen, you can detect RNA as far out as 90 days. So most importantly, just don't get up to those body fluids uh, and protect yourself. Pretty simple stuff, right? And then lastly, yeah, don't even go there, right? um, Lastly is this, this was a case control study where they looked at different independent risk factors, and, again, it came down to ultimately it's when you're exposed during late illness is where you're going to have transmission take place. And this is borne out even in the Dallas experience. So uh, the uh, initial uh, um, patient who imported the case to Dallas, when he showed up, to the emergency department. There was, no, uh, there was nothing used besides standard precautions, and he exposed a whole bunch of people, and then he went home, right? How many cases came out from that? Zero, right, from that initial exposure. It was only people who were in full PPE who were managing him in the ICU who got infected. So I'm not advocating that early in disease that you hug people without PPE, but, again, it shows we need to have some scientific rigor about where the risk is and where the risk isn't when we're managing these people. And then lastly, uh, coming back to the fomite transmission, this is from Dan Bausch out of Tulane, where they tried to either get RNA or infectious particles from a whole bunch of different uh, inanimate objects that had been cleaned appropriately with virucidals, and they did not recover it anywhere except on bloody gloves that were used as a control. So Does that mean I would go into an Ebola treatment unit and wipe my hands along a window sill and then touch my face unprotected? No way. But, again, it reminds us, know where the risk is, and the risk is that patient. So uh, when I got there, again, you know, they always make the person who has no idea what they're doing the lead. So I was the lead, but I was with a group of really smart people. So... Freddie is a person who's been working on loss and viral hemorrhagic fevers her entire career. She's actually Dan Bosch's wife, and the, as a couple, two of probably the most experienced viral hemorrhagic fever docs in the world. So she was out there doing an investigation on why, uh, why uh, the doc before me got ill. So she was a great resource to have to figure out how do we get this place back under control. Suzanne Donovan's a great infection control doc out of L.A., Dario is a logistician who worked with MSF for years on Ebola outbreaks. Um, Rebecca is a great infection control provider out of the UK. And Henry has been a Ugandan army physician who did several Ebola outbreaks. So as a group, we were able to really try and generate consensus of how do we reestablish control in this place that's on fire. And of course, it said, yeah, how do I make it home alive, right? So. The first thing is, obviously, you need to know, does the stuff you're putting on, does it work, right? So how many people got frustrated as they were reading the guidance on what you should be using for PPE over the past four or five months? Yeah, it got really confusing, right? And and I think where a lot of the confusion initially started is the, the recommendations were based on epidemiologic transmission and what we do every day. So how good are we at stopping C. diff.? Yeah, not really good, but they recommended essentially the same stuff we do for that, uh, for Ebola. And unfortunately, most of that PPE is really about episodic care, right? You go in the room, you tweak the ventilator dial, you walk out. You go in the room, you examine the patient, you walk out. In Ebola, you really, you're in the area for a long period of time, even when you look in the biocontainment units in the US, in Nebraska, and NIH, in Emory, because taking off the stuff is so dangerous, that you don't want to be uh, exposing yourself to that risk moment to moment. When you're doing episodic care, now you need your whole body protected, right? You're not running in where only your front is potentially going to be exposed. When you're in a room for three hours, you don't even always have sense of where all your body is, what you're going to touch. If any of your exposed skin uh, uh, gets virus on it, and then you touch that with your hand and touch your face, because we're constantly always touching our face, then it's off to the races. So the PPE really did not make sense, and it wasn't what was being utilized in West Africa at all. Uh, We, in fact, thought that the U.S. recommendations made no sense. The other thing is, you know, just like antimicrobial therapy, you can start with what we used to do, which was escalation of therapy. So start narrow and then escalate if the patient doesn't respond, and we learned that actually that's a bad strategy. You should start with your best strategy up front, Get appropriate antimicrobial treatment and then de-escalate i think ppe has to be the same people have said well why don't we just wait until they have nausea vomiting and diarrhea and then we'll put on higher ppe my experience albeit anecdotally is i can never predict who was about to vomit so vomiting comes before diarrhea by about a day and a half and unfortunately i got the bull's eye on my chest more than once and you'd be really bummed if that happens to you and you wish you were wearing the higher level of ppe so in my mind the patient's getting better 10 days out, really looks like they're convalescing. Fine to scale down the PPE, but don't start low and then try and expand. I think that's just very dangerous. Um, You've got to use discipline. You've got to wear it and use it the same way every single time. It would be great if you just put it on and there's no responsibility for you, but there's huge responsibility. If you get a rip in it, if you're not paying attention to what you're doing, You, in fact, will expose yourself, and all you're doing is just wearing stuff that makes you feel comfortable, but, in fact, you've gotten exposed. Know where your highest areas are. It's your chest, your belly, your feet, and your hands that are going to be the highest burden. So when you're taking off stuff, you want to reduce the infectious burden. We actually disinfect. We spray with bleach to reduce the infectious burden because we know if you take stuff off 100 times, there's going to be times where you actually uh, self-contaminate so better to get bulk infectious particles off and to also give enough dwell time for bleach to kill the virus. Because as I said before, the virus is actually not very robust. So it's not like a spore-producing virus or one that has a really rigorous envelope. It will die very quickly. You just need to treat it. So in West Africa, uh, again, we, the CDC criteria were not applied at all. Uh, in fact... Uh, The CDC, when I was there, and this is no hit on them, I used to be at the CDC, uh, they were banned from going into the Ebola treatment units because it was too high risk. So uh, being banned to do that, going to homes and and, uh, sampling dead bodies, that's part of what they used to do for their job. They don't do that anymore. So you know how you get better at using PPE? You use it, right? So if you're not learning the clinical pearls and you're not putting yourself at risk, it's hard to imagine that you're going to be tweaking the dials on your PPE. So all of us went to the tried and tested route, which in some ways may be overkill. In other ways, um, uh, may not be scientifically proven. But MSF had been doing Ebola outbreaks for two decades. And they had very low infection rates. So most of us used what they did and then hybridized it. This is kind of where we start. This is me at KGH. You start with uh, coveralls. Actually, here in the US, we're not using Tyvek because virus could theoretically go through this particular Tyvek suit, but this is what we had. And then again, I talked about like the clinical pearls. How do you keep your sleeves from rolling up? You know, so you see some people with horizontal tape, the world from hazmat, that actually puts you at risk for self contaminating. So what we learned to do is just make a small thumb hole and put your uh, undergloves. Through your sleeve and that way you're going to hold your sleeve it's never going to roll up and then you put a long pair of gloves over it again you need to do it to come up with these ways because then you realize well if i make my hole too big that kind of was not really a good idea either so you learn exactly how to make the right size hole we used respiratory protection we used uh eye mucous membrane protection and it was it was but hot it stunk you know so as soon as you put this hood on Uh, there have been times where people put thermometers in the suits and you got up as high as 45 degrees centigrade. So it's really, really warm. Uh, As soon as you're on this, your goggles are fogged up beyond belief and uh, you're already starting to sweat immediately. And the key thing, again, is to go in with buddies. So that's one of the big things that we initiated immediately, now that I wasn't the only doc there, is to make sure there's always someone checking you and someone paying attention because you're going to get focused on patient care and other stuff. Sometimes make bad decisions for an individual, or a good decision for an individual, but a bad decision for running the unit. And the buddy really needs to be there to uh, make sure that you're both on the same page and staying safe. And lastly, taking it off. So this, I think, was probably some of the stuff we did uh, the smartest. So Whether it was my first time coming out or the 50th time coming out, I had absolutely no independent control of how I took off my stuff. I was commanded and instructed exactly how to hold my body and what to do. And that way, if you have sun on the brain, or if you're thinking about something emotional that just happened inside, or if you're just distracted and tired, you are going to come out and do the same thing the same way 100% of the time because this is one of your high-risk times, right? There's probably people who either threw up on you or there's a whole bunch of stuff that's on your hands and on your apron, and you just want to make sure that you have a 0% chance of getting exposed from taking off uh, your PPE. And this is some of the stuff that we've really started to bring back to the Ebola treatment unit here at University of Maryland, this kind of discipline. So just the take-home message for translation back to the U.S., Close contacts and healthcare workers are the ones who are at risk. Most transmissions can be direct contact, so use your use your strategies accordingly. You don't need to examine the patient every minute, every day, just because well, our form says we need to assess the patient, and that's what we do. If you're going to touch the patient, you know the patient's the highest risk, so touch them when you think it's going to be useful, and don't touch them when there's actually going to be no utility to it. If they're telling you they don't have abdominal pain, there's no reason to feel their belly. You know, it just it's a different way of how we normally think about care. But it's just putting the risk in front of you so that you still do good care for the patient, but you also uh, make sure the staff are safe are safe as well. The other thing that you'll probably read a lot about is people talk about this passive safety officer. I liken that to someone just watching the train going off the tracks. You don't want a passive safety officer. You want someone actively involved, right? You want a buddy next to you that can prevent you from doing the thing wrong rather than the person documenting what you did wrong, right? Um, So I I think, again, the idea of having someone on the outside of the room doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, It Really, they should be in the room working with you and choreographing, especially if you're doing uh, invasive procedures like putting a central line in, which is stuff that we are planning to do. Uh, in the U.S., so PPE for resource-rich environments. Unfortunately, again, there's no widget you get to buy. You know, so everyone's paid attention to buying PAPRs, powered air purifying respirators that have more protection than just an N95 mask. But they come at a cost. They're much harder to get off without self-contaminating. So, even though we have more resources in the U.S., we've also created new new problems with the strategies that we're using. It doesn't mean we don't have good strategies. It's just they are different problems. In addition, we have probably better environmental controls here. So we have some things that are harder, some things that are better. So how do you actually organize an Ebola treatment unit? Most people would say, oh, it just makes sense. You just put up some beds. It's actually the flow is important because what you're going to have is you're going to have some people who are suspect, some people who are confirmed, and then some people are getting better. And if you mix suspect with confirmed, then you are making sure that whoever is suspect who didn't have Ebola when they showed up at your unit is going to have Ebola when they leave your unit. So, in fact, the flow is incredibly important to make sure that you also do not become the conduit for transmission. So if I just see patients willy-nilly and in no particular order, then I may see someone who's sick because I get focused on them and they have Ebola. Oh, yeah, and then I go talk to the person who just has TB and I put my hands on their chest. And I, you know, so there's clearly a strategy for going to people who you think do not have Ebola first and organizing the patient flow so that you get to them first so you don't track infectious material back to them. Um, so Henry and I, we were clinical buddies. We would go in together. We'd spend about two hours occasionally a little longer but really couldn't do more than two hours in the suits in the morning and in the afternoon when we would do three sessions we were really burnt but occasionally we would try and do three sessions the third sessions usually in the middle of the day it could be really hot and uh, it just becomes pretty dangerous for getting stuck inside at night too the generators were highly unreliable so the lights went out all the time they use nails to put up IVs, so you can imagine if the lights went out and you couldn't see what you were doing, you're very highly likely you were going to rip your suit. So we just made uh, a decision that we weren't going in at night, which stinks for the patients, but just had to be in terms of our safety. So we would meet with the staff. We would meet as a team, and we would decide what's the goal for this particular mission going in. And we had to stick to it. So remember I said we didn't know what the census was? Well, we figured it out after a while. So at our maximum, we were between 120 and 130 patients. Uh, And there were essentially two docs. So two docs, do the math. You have 90 minutes to two hours in your suit. There's 100 and some odd patients. That's not a lot of time per patient. So you really needed to organize this as a population-based care of the unit rather than getting stuck on individual patients. And so we would meet with the nurses. We would all agree on what we were trying to do for the particular time going in. Here's where we started. The ambulance would drop people off here. They used these makeshift tents when this annex, it was supposed to hold about eight people. It was dreary, it was gross, there was dried blood, dried vomit on the floor all the time. The beds were rusty. They were, you know, essentially they didn't have mattresses or they were on the ground with a bunch of vomit and other stuff that they would try and clean but never got cleaned. We would sometimes have 30 or 40 patients in there, so they would overflow them into these tents, which essentially were pressure cookers. So they were really heavy canvas, and you would try and ask them, don't put them in during the day. Unfortunately, uh, sometimes they would, and we'd find a fair number of people dead in there from, uh, from hyperthermia. So it was just a place where you had to try and get control every day of organizing what's the safest place for the patients. This was our suspect ward, though. So we would start, again, we would walk over the bodies on the ground who were clearly sick to try and get to the less sick people, talk to them. Because the key thing we wanted to do is if you didn't need to be there, you needed to go. And that was going to be the safest place for you was getting out of the unit. So we were looking for a low to medium suspicious patients, get their PCR done. We had the CDC lab on site, so we actually had good throughput for uh, being able to do PCR. Uh, and the other thing is we wanted to find the really highly suspicious patients so we could concentrate them in a treatment unit. Because if you have a patient here and a patient there and a patient there, uh, and the landscape was very big in there and people were constantly moving around, it would be very hard to provide aggressive care for any group of people. So we tried to get them to be, uh, find out if they were positive and put them in one concentrated area so at least we could do aggressive rehydration therapy with those people. And then there was always more patients coming in. Uh, it, it is important to note though that in West Africa, we kind of figured it out, right? So MSF knew how to turn their ambulances around and go get more people. And the US, kind of fear uh, was paramount. And with the one patient, who went to Dallas, this is initially how they dealt with their ambulance, let's just put it somewhere and hope it burns. So you need to use some common sense. We were turning these things around all the time. There is a way to clean these ambulances and get them back uh, to get more patients. So you'll hear this term more and more, PUI, the person under investigation, so they're not suspect Ebola cases. They're pers- persons under investigation. And the important thing is every place needs to have the ability to uh, identify and isolate. And that's because we don't get to determine where suspect patients or PUIs show up, right? Um, The other thing is, if you screen on fever, good luck. We're about to come into the flu season. We also have RSV and other situations. So there's going to be a whole bunch more fever in the community than there's going to be Ebola in the community. So we would advocate screening on the travel and the potential sick contact first and then looking for symptoms rather than screening on symptoms, which is different than how we did SARS, et cetera, but it makes much more sense. You're just going to shut down emergency departments and other places with every person who shows up to have a fever if all of a sudden you had to put PPE in until you ask the travel questions. Uh, Even in West Africa, we rarely saw someone who had Ebola who we couldn't link back to another case so it 's important to note that that sick contact's actually still very useful for being able to figure out if they 're high risk or not Oops. screening the screening criteria are constantly changing. You can get them from a variety of websites they 're pushed out by the university as well they 're mostly coming from the CDC and the state health department. I think the the struggle I have with them is the criteria is okay, but they're really epidemiologic case definitions. They're not clinical definitions. So, like, when you look at some of the symptomatology, there's no duration. If someone's had nausea and vomiting for four weeks, I assure you it is not Ebola, right? So I don't care if they came from Sierra Leone and have nausea and vomiting uh, If they've had it for four, five, six weeks, it's not Ebola. It's something else. So I think duration is something that, unfortunately, because, again, that's more of a clinical thing than an epidemiologic thing, that's really fallen off the radar screen as something that could help us figure out. Uh, Also, the temporal course, you know, they do the list of symptoms, but they don't ask in order. So if you've had certain things and then something else happens and it's way out of order, again, it doesn't sound like that's Ebola. Well, how do we make the diagnosis? Right now, uh, molecular testing, PCR, is going to be the uh, main way that the diagnosis is made. Uh, And, again, most of the data is still based on previous outbreaks. And the previous outbreaks taught us that the CT, so the lower the number of the CT for PCR, the higher the infectious burden. So it's it's the cycle in PCR in which you get a positive. So if you go through 40 cycles and you never get positive uh, um, RNA back, then that's a negative test. If you go through 19 cycles and you get back, that person's super hot. That is very, very sick person uh, and uh, highly, uh, highly, highly viremic. But on, day, on the day of initial symptoms, and the day of initial symptoms being fever, if you test people, the threshold for detection is right there. So unfortunately, someone can be positive, just like the Sierra Leonin, uh surgeon who came back to Nebraska. On day one, he was, he was negative. Then they retested at 72 hours, and he, in fact, then became positive. So that's our struggle. Everyone thinks, oh, we're just going to get the test and it's going to rule it out, when in fact the test only rules it out when you have several days of symptoms. So we need a more sensitive test that can identify even fewer copies. In addition, most of the testing was, had to be done in BSL-4 labs. So they had to take a sample, they had to kill it, and then extract the RNA. Uh, and that requires, again, a high level of biocontainment to be able to do that testing. The only ones who do that here are um, the state health department. USAMRID, which is at Fort Detrick, can do it, but t- typically doesn't do it for civilians or the CDC, through that uh, network, the laboratory response network, it was set up to confirm. But here, we need rule out, right? Like, if you have someone who's you're highly suspicious has Ebola, and it takes 10 hours longer to get the test back than before, who cares? You're, it's not like you're going to take them out of isolation. and It's not like you're not going to wear PPE. What we really need is the ability to rule out the low likelihood person that we need to get them out of isolation to open up the four additional beds that are closed in the emergency department or if we have them up on Six Weinberg to be able to get back to business as usual. And that was not seen as the uh, important uh, task of the LRN. It's starting to change, but fortunately what we have been able to now get is there's something called BioFire, and it just received the FDA's emergency use authorization approval. It's a... uh, Self-contained molecular test that does not require high biocontainment. The sensitivity and specificity are still controversial, but it's believed to be a fairly good test. Again, this is all self-contained. It could be done by our lab, and you can get an answer back uh, quite quickly. still has the problem of day one in terms of threshold, but the good thing is uh, we can now get a test uh, if we're struggling to argue for the state to do a test. So general isolation strategies. Once a patient is suspected of having Ebola in the states, they stay wherever they are. Uh, We may move them from our ED upstairs, but they're not traveling around. They're not going to CAT scanner. They're not going uh, to a variety of different diagnostic studies. They're stuck. And that's because of the potential for spread. And because of that, that's going to limit the diagnostics. Our lab here and a fair number of other labs have refused to run. samples in standard lab uh, machines. So the only way, once we decide to isolate someone, we have to use point-of-care testing. So we have a Piccolo, we have an iStat, we have the ability to do D-dimer, but on the most part, you have very limited uh, point-of-care testing. In terms of x-ray, the only uh, diagnostic we're gonna have is bedside ultrasound. Um, There is some suggestion from the American College of Surgeons that perhaps you could do surgery on these patients. This has never been tested. The only time I know that surgery has been done was a case in uh, Uganda, and every person who is exposed to that surgery got Ebola. So, Sam, would you uh, step up to the plate for that? Yeah, I I, I think until we know more, it's great to put out that guidance, but really? uh, I, I mean, our guidance should be based on better science than just we want to make sure we're putting out our own statement. There's almost no guidance that's scientifically derived from there. Uh, When you look at ECMO, at least ELSO came out and said, at this point in time, they don't see any utility for ECMO, because how many people have seen a bloodless cannulation? Right? And if you think about it, I said the sickest people are the highest infectious burden. Right? So the person going on ECMO is probably sick, probably uh, satisfies the sickest type of people. Then you have a, blood, uh, a bed filled with blood during cannulation. That just seems like that might be a bit of a strategy. Where now we need to think about healthcare worker safety and really should we be doing that? So here's the flip side of that. Most people who come to the U.S. from these countries are going if they come to the healthcare system for need are not going to have Ebola. They're going to have something else. So what do you do if someone who's you know 60 years old who comes in and has signs of a CVA? Oh yeah, but 15 days ago, they traveled from Liberia. If we isolate that person, they don't get a CT scan. They certainly do not get TPA, and their life may be changed forever. Well, it's also not a home-run therapy either, but it's the mainstay standard of care therapy. So how do we decide what's best for the patient at the same time balancing, how do we keep our facility and staff uh, safe? And especially when we're in that time window where the laboratory test will not give us an answer. What we're starting to try and build here, and we've worked it through the executive uh, committee that's overseeing Ebola here at the university that represents the dean and the CEO of the hospital, is to try and come up with an assessment team that's trying to figure out what's the likelihood the patient has something, what are we proposing to do to the patient, and what is that proposed intervention or exposure do to put staff at risk, and then trying to weigh those things to, again, balance so that we don't take someone who has very low likelihood of having Ebola who would get an intervention that's not likely to transmit to anyone and to hurt them because we just knee-jerk reaction, decided to isolate them and not giving them the therapy. More to come on that. We're still working it through risk management and lawyers, but hopefully at some point in the near future that'll be a formal capability that the university has. So just finishing up with the annex, so... We start assessing the patients who are at high risk now that we're done with the low risk people. And really our therapy was pretty basic. It was when you're talking to a patient, you grab water and you just push water into their mouth. You know, uh, if you think the person also needed oral rehydration salts, you would mix that in. There was oral rehydration uh, fluid that was made, but I never trusted the way it was made. So I personally would just make it at the bedside for the patient, and then just make them drink in front of me. There's only so much you could do in that period of time, though. Our nurses, there were 34 nurses, about six went in. The rest of them would maybe feed patients, and clearly no one was getting rehydration. We started to use survivors, people who were recovering from the disease, to help us with rehydration, because it's not like you needed complex medical knowledge. You just needed to be in there and watch to make sure people were safe and that when they were getting sicker that someone was working to rehydrate them. And unfortunately, again, we had almost no, pa- no time to really manage patients. And if you got stuck on one patient, that meant you were going to hurt other patients down the road. We would then go to the confirmed ward. There was always, like, the community of people who were either not sick yet or the people who weren't ever going to get sick. There's a fair number of people who just get kind of a self-limited disease. And then other people who were getting better. So they would hold court outside. They would sit in chairs. They would, you know, drink ORF and just chat. And they were a great group of people. So those were the people we'd just say hi to and then move on. Inside, then, you're trying to figure out, how do I figure out who's sick? Um, and you would look for things like not sick. Right, walking. I don't mean stumbling, but truly walking. Probably okay for right now, and don't need my help. Eating. If they're, you know, not just taking one bite and stopping, but really being able to eat and feeling hungry, that person is either not sick enough yet, or they're getting better. Under blankets was a big sign. So I was dying of the heat, and you would see like people under three blankets. It's 95 degrees in there and humid. That's a fair assessment that that person's pretty viremic and pretty sick. Signs of bleeding, that gets the most press. The DIC that you see in Ebola is a nothing. Everyone here has seen much worse DIC than I ever saw in West Africa. It's not much at all. I mean, we again, we see it much worse here. But if you see signs of epistaxis, that's very concerning. If you see gingival uh, uh, mucosal bleeding, that's very concerning. But the people who bleed out, it's typically a premorbid state. So they may have an upper GI bleed and bleed out. But on the most part, you're not walking through going, wow, I just can't believe there's blood everywhere. No, it's a lot worse in U.S. ICUs than it is there. In fact, overall, the disease, you know, for intensivists, all of us who went out there uh, who were intensivists have talked since, we're all like, really, this is it? This is the disease? It's not that impressive. You know, you see... Much worse disease, especially with some of the infectious disease we see here uh, that just the body looks a lot worse. That may be a factor that we had very little supportive care to be able to offer there, but I was really underwhelmed by the disease. Uh, Just in terms of things that uh, increase likelihood of dying, so encephalopathy is a big one and hasn't gotten much attention, again, In the medical press so you hear most people say this is a gi disease the diarrhea is like cholera you have you know six to ten liters of diarrhea that's true but actually the encephalopathies are profound and it's an agitated encephalopathy it gets in the way of everything you want to do the patient's hard to be able to manage they're not someone you want to really start an IV in they're even difficult to give im drugs to Uh, i wish we had ketamine because i think that probably would have been a better drug to be able to manage this If we overshot uh, and the patient needed an airway, there was no airways to be uh, had. So you needed to really figure out how are you going to be able to get their agitation under control. And a lot of times the agitation was the reason why they died. We just could never get them rehydrated because they were too dangerous to get near when they were agitated. In addition, as I mentioned with hemorrhage, even the literature is starting to bear this out. The epistaxis really is a big thing in terms of if you start seeing that. And again, it's not profound epistaxis. You just see people starting to bleed from their nose. You know that that person's more likely they're not going to die. Other things, the old teaching was extremes of age, so that kids do very poorly. We saw a fair number of kids survive this. Um, but the other old teaching was that elderly do very poorly. That is absolutely true. So... Uh, A lot of the data you will see because the life expectancy is so short, they do cut off of 45 or 50 years old. The mortality is significantly higher. My sense is if they use 60 or 65, the mortality would be 100%. I never saw someone who had gray hair survive this disease. Uh, Other things that run with uh, mortality, PCR copies do run with mortality. And then the one just here on the right side is AST. So some people have said, oh, yeah, this is transaminitis, this is uh, a viral hepatitis. I actually think it's probably rhabdo, because the AST is much higher than the ALT. And in point-of-care testing, we can't measure CK. And you also aren't doing UAs and then doing microscopy to see whether or not you have heme-positive but microscopy-negative urine. So this is probably more reflective of rhabdo as a... representation of increased mortality than it is of liver dysfunction, even though they can get liver dysfunction. You don't see much jaundice either, which also goes away from, you know, uh, a true uh, liver dysfunction picture as the likelihood of causing death. This is from a working group that I was on that was supposed to provide consensus for if we increased resources to West Africa, how should we manage people. So the encephalopathy is profound, as I said. I had this one kid. He was 14 years old. He caught my eye. He was, no one was around him. He was clearly alone, uh, and he just, every time we came near him, he would struggle to get away from us, and it was clear, all right, probably not right now is he safe enough to try and take him down with an IM injection. So I would, first time I saw him in the morning, we'll get to him in the afternoon. Afternoon, same thing. Next morning, same thing. He was dead the next afternoon and stuck on a bed uh, with rigor. So the encephalopathy, again, it may not be because the virus is neurotropic, or it may be that the virus is neurotropic. It may be toxic encephalopathy. Most likely it's multifactorial, and a big combination is they get pretty hypernatremic from their hypochromic metabolic acidosis and volume loss from their diarrhea. Um, so the, the potassiums that were measured in Conakry were under two sometimes. Sodium's over 150, so probably their serumosomes are way up. That could be what's making them altered, but we actually don't know. So if you resolve all of those electrolyte abnormalities, will their brain actually come back? Again, not very clear. There were two LPs done in Europe with expats who came back. Pretty bland. A little bit of elevated protein, a little bit of elevated white count, but really nothing that goes for either blood like in SAH, so there was no red cells, and there was really nothing going for uh, profound viremia uh, and inflammation in the CNS. So we, we, we unfortunately we need autopsy data on this, and uh, most people aren't signing up uh, as pathologists to do autopsies in Ebola right now. So skipping ahead, just what, what did we get done? This, so this just came out in the New England Journal, and our experience was very different. Maybe if you're lucky, you get a liter of fluid into someone, and it's a huge struggle to even do that. Um, We would treat people empirically for bacterial translocation. Yes, it's very controversial when they have GI syndrome, but it's something we could do. We treated most people who were ill uh, with uh, ACT for malaria just because the co-infection rates could be fairly high. But on the most part, people were not getting the care that we're used to doing here which then goes, well, what do do we know in the U.S.? This is now a little, yeah, it's still 3 in 10. So in the U.S., we've had 3 in 10 patients who were critically ill. Uh, One died, second one died, but we also know that people in the U.S. and in Europe have recovered from respiratory failure, from renal dysfunction. So we think that some level of organ support probably makes sense. We never saw hypoxemic respiratory failure in West Africa. And the reason why I know is we use the pulse ox not because we were trying to figure out what their oxygen saturation was, but um, you can't take a watch into the Ebola treatment unit. So there's no way to determine seconds. So the best way to figure out what the patient's pulse is is with the pulse ox. So we did pulse ox on everyone. Invariably, they were not hypoxemic. Almost everyone who's come back to Europe and the U.S. are hypoxemic. So it may be capillary leak and overly aggressive volume resuscitation. It may be a survival bias that they're just surviving long enough to develop what we never saw in West Africa. But the important thing is, you know, I I think we should be able to provide respiratory support, renal replacement there because people have survived and we do see it uh, as as a fairly common thing in Europe and the U.S. But I also think we need to do things a little differently, you know. In terms of your indications, don't wait for people to crash, right? You do not want to have an emergency procedure to do anything. If someone's failed nasal cannula and they're probably having increased oxygen, I would not use vapotherm because we don't know what it does for spreading disease. I would not use non-invasive for the same reason. In addition, those can temporize people to where they fall off the cliff. And then when they crash, they crash very quickly. So our strategy here is going to be plot a few data points if they fail nasal cannula, even though normally we, of course, would want to keep them off the ventilator, we are going to intubate them in, uh, much earlier in the game so that nothing is an emergency. It's all going to be planned and elective. I think we could do intubation uh, carefully. And just finishing up the last thing, so this is this is not a spectator sport, right? So our trainees, we've made a decision, shouldn't be in there. Not because there's probably not some... Utility for trainees to see a new disease, but this is not the time where we want to put people at risk and the discipline again Has to be a hundred percent. We need to minimize people's exposure So like I I said routine exams, you know, just don't make sense if you're examining them for a reason absolutely, but if not um, Just don't do it No emergencies right everything should be planned out if it looks like the patient's gonna require renal replacement therapy in the next day or two then the line should be put in now. The stuff should be already ordered up. Again, nothing should be a crash. Anything you do needs to have a primary plan, an alternative, a contingency, and an emergency. So for our DOD people, they're used to PACE. Um, It's uh, used by the soft community. We typically, we don't plan enough when we do procedures. You know, we're always busy. We're trying to multitask. We're doing a whole bunch of stuff. So in our unit up on Six Weinberg, the day is going to start with a briefing. We're going to talk about goals. We're going to talk about if we're doing a procedure, how are we going to do that procedure, what are going to be the alternatives to the procedure, what are we going to do to bail if we're having trouble with the procedure. Again, just more discipline and, um, and deliberate movement doesn't mean you don't do the procedure. It means you just need to be a little safer in doing it. So I'll stop right there. Um, sorry to go over a little bit. the actual cause of death? Uh, most of it's dehydration. So uh, so the the question was, what is the cause of death? Most of it's probably dehydration and electrolyte abnormality. I, I think a fair number of people develop profound hypokalemia and probably uh, ultimately have arrhythmogenic deaths. Others uh, do, even though we typically don't see people dying of this here, you know, uh, uh, hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis, it's fairly profound. Uh, If you have 10 liters of diarrhea and you're replacing one liter a day tops, uh, you're going to get behind. So both the shock from intravascular volume down, but in addition also the electrolyte losses. In addition, hypocalcemia folks where we saw a fair amount of tetany, and there's probably a fair amount of seizures that probably also plays some role in the encephalopathy. In the U.S. and European side, it's probably refractory organ dysfunction. The encephalopathy, again, is something that once it's profound, it's probably difficult to reverse. But great question. One patient in Germany actually died of paralytic ileus so um, they were not offered a decompressive laparotomy, and they died from abdominal compartment syndrome.
0: Couple, couple questions. Um, from your standpoint, in the U.S., what would be the ideal staffing um, from a physician and nursing standpoint? How would you set that up?
1: Right, oh, That's a great question. So the question was how would you staff an Ebola treatment unit? The first thing is it depends how sick the patient is, right? So some of these patients, you know, almost look like outpatients, right? So you don't want to have two or three intensivists who, you know, don't even know how to manage an unsick patient. Uh, You know, so you want to have a, a collaborative group, and that's, in fact, what we've done here. So the emergency department's part of the team, but then the consult group is ID and infection control folks who will really work as general medicine hospitalists, Uh, and then if the patient were to get sick then intensivist really it almost becomes a closed unit then that was the difference i think from Emory. really used id up front and then realized what you know after their first two patients weren't that sick when they had a critically ill patient wait a second we need a lot more help that they had to bring in the icu group but it wasn't formalized the way we have it here so we have kind of Carl, myself, and others who are part of the intensivist team, we jump on when the resource is required, then we stay away when it's not required. From nursing, it's, it's a very, very uh, uh, labor-intensive undertaking. So we recommended to, for someone who's sick, two nurses in the, in the room at all times. And again, that's very hard to staff. But if you're drawing blood, again, do you want someone who's at the window watching you or do you want someone who's actually assisting you who reminds you you just almost touched your face with your hand or be careful of how you have the blood tubes stacked up when someone's not that sick i think we can go down to uh, much less staffing but our posture is going to be two nurses for a three-hour period then they rotate out there's going to be nps uh, who are going to be in the unit because invariably the docs if we really do have a case are going to get stuck trying to do IRB with the investigational new agents. People are going to get stuck having to do media things. Even when we had the suspect that was low prob, I was in meetings for like 12 hours a day. You never actually get to see the patient, you have to go to these important meetings. So we need people who could be at the bedside to make it all happen. So, you know, folks have asked me how many cases could we do here? Well, we have 750 beds, nearly 150 ICU beds. We could probably do two. And that, and that would be really, really, really hard.
0: Even the daily waste produced oh, yeah. for caring for a patient has to be just astounding.
1: Yeah, so um, one of the NIH facility directors who's a phenomenal guy, he came up and consulted for us. I think it's about 36 cubic feet of waste per patient per day. And if you had to think about it, that has to be treated in a very special way. So what Emory has done, what NIH has done, is they've bought – a large autoclave capability so that you can sterilize before you get rid of. We have not undertaken that investment here. So here we're going to be using burn boxes, which, yeah, it will... All your PPE has to go in it, right? Everything you do has to go into that waste. So, yeah, it's a a huge
0: ordeal. What did you do in uh, Sierra Leone? Was anything reused or is it all?
1: No, uh, I, I mean, reusability, actually, while it sounds like it's a good thing, uh, especially from a money standpoint creates all new complexities How do you bring how do you disinfect something and bring it from the hot zone back to the cold zone and make sure that you 've really got it to work? I mean, if you have goggles, yeah, you can dump them in uh, bleach for thirty minutes and I can assure you there 's going to be no Ebola in thereafter. Anyone put goggles on after they 've been in bleach? Yeah, you get a pretty good whiff of bleach and your eyes burn too right so there 's it makes sense that you want to reuse, but it's hard to reuse. So what we ended up doing is getting rid of everything, and we just we incinerated it all there. Um, here, again, there'll be some incineration. There's reusability. The reusability uh, equipment here is the paper. So the papper belt, the paper, uh trolls, and the papper hose have to be disinfected and reused. Also the boots. Okay.
0: And then... Um in, in Sierra Leone and other locations in West Africa, how do you know when evaluating a sick patient uh, that it's too late to make any difference? Oh, when you question. say, you know, it's unsalvageable.
1: It's a great question. So, our biggest, so some of our biggest stuff. So if they had para, uh, abdominal paradox, that was usually someone who had such a profound metabolic acidosis that was, I was unlikely to keep up. If they had that in combination with encephalopathy, Almost all of those people just died, and they died that afternoon. There were a few people, though, who we saw isolated encephalopathy. Essentially, they were hypertonic, uh, and they may, in fact, have been hypocalcemic, who two days later we you know, we had written them off, and they were speaking, and they were like normal again. So that's the other thing you learn, right? So the Gulu outbreak, 425 patients, people are going to tell you, we know that no one ever or – Almost always, but now, when you 're at sixteen and seventeen thousand, you start to see that if i 've only seen five patients and i 'm making a almost or never statement about five patients, I may be right. I may be wrong, right? So I think if you see someone who's got encephalopathy and abdominal paradox, it 's unlikely they're going to survive, and based on your resources, they would not be the first person I go to, but you know. It's also I think we started to see some people survive who we had written off that because we. I I probably saw 300 patients, you get enough experience where you start to realize it's a lot like here, right, where we we have pattern recognition. This is someone who's unlikely to survive. Um, But I don't think we had the razor-sharp exactness of being able to know this person's absolutely dead. The epistaxis probably was the only one that really ran with that, or an old person. If you saw an old person, you knew they were in trouble. If we saw an early pregnant person, all of of them died in our unit as well. So there were a few kind of patterns that we saw, but I I think we started to realize we were getting some of it wrong as well because we were seeing a fair volume.
0: And and how do you... uh resuscitate somebody with how much fluid? How do you guide that? What type? I mean, ideally, I imagine plasma. light or empirically without the sort of of point-of-care electrolyte testing to guide uh, therapy. How do you, what do you do?
1: Yeah, no, you're you're, right. What do you do? So, uh, unfortunately, you know, so we were banned from starting IVs because of the recent uh, person who I got, uh, who I replaced getting Ebola. So because of that, we had to rely on the nurses to start IVs. And they would put 24 gauges in, like, the thumb. And, and then the IVs, they were these metal catheters. Like, you've never seen anything like it. It's a metal catheter where the med port is right on the catheter. No uh, no warlock, And then you're using bottles uh, of IV. So we would teach them 16 or 18s, except in kids. And you would get in there, and you would tell them, stop tapping them off because they're metal, and they would clot. Right, And you're like, every time this bottle gets dry, you see them. Every time you walk in the room, go to this area, the sick treatment area. Anything that's dry, replace it. Never happened. For weeks and weeks, we would, only when we came on rounds would we replace it. So really, there was nothing that you titrate to because you couldn't ever get close. So what you're doing on rounds is you're talking to the next patient as you're squeezing the bag on this patient and trying to get someone to translate for the third person down, it, it, and you know, it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, we also didn't have that much balanced crystalloid. We had LR, if anything, um, but there's, plasma light just is unknown out in Africa, so there was a, a fair amount of, of uh, saline, which is exactly opposite of what you want to be given. In addition, uh, uh, while we never had ultrasound to look at the optic nerve, I'm sure a fair number of people had elevated ICPs. They were giving a lot of dextrose solutions. So it was just how do you reduce the chaos to uh, actually let's just do it the same way in everyone, and it was fairly hard for us to do that. All right, thanks. thanks.